Reading, short and deep. Hi, this is Jesse. And Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. La Belle Dansant Merci by John Keats. First published in 1820. Or in 1819. <laughs> <laughs> and many other dates as well. There is some, uh, some contention about which version of the poem one ought to focus on. Um, and I think that's something we ought to get to. But uh, before we do, uh, any given reader of the poem will always begin with a version of the poem. So what I was thinking, Jesse, is maybe I'd read the poem itself. It's only 48 lines, just to mm-hmm. bring it up into the mind of, uh, of you and me and, and anyone listening. Um, even though it may not be exactly the same 48 lines that someone else may be looking at. And then we can proceed from there. All right? Sounds good. Yep. La Belle Dame Sans Merci. Oh, what can ail thee, knight at arms, alone and palely loitering? The sedge has withered from the lake, and no birds sing. Oh, what can ail thee, knight at arms, so haggard and so woebegone? The squirrel's granary is full and the harvest's done. I see a lily on thy brow with anguish moist and fever dew and on thy cheeks a fading rose fast withereth too. I met a lady in the meads full beautiful, a fairy's child. Her hair was long, her foot was light and her eyes were wild. I made a garland for her head and bracelets too and fragrant zone, she looked at me as she did love and made sweet moan. I set her on my pacing steed, and nothing else saw all day long, for sidelong would she bend and sing a fairy's song. She found me roots of relish sweet, and honey wild, and manna dew, and sure in language strange, she said, I love thee true. She took me to her elfin grot, and there she wept and sighed full sore, and there I shut her wild, wild eyes with kisses for. And there she lulled me asleep, and there I dreamed, ah, woe betide, the latest dream I ever dreamed on the cold hill's side. I saw pale kings and princes too, pale warriors, pale death were they all. They cried, La belle dame sans merci hath thee in thrall. I saw their starved lips in the gloam with horrid warning gaped wide, and I awoke and found me here on the cold hill's side. And this is why I sojourn here, alone and palely loitering, though the sedge is withered from the lake, and no birds sing. I think this, uh, this poem, the, the Beautiful Woman Who Knows No Mercy, um, or as one of my students once said, the beautiful dame who doesn't know how to say thank you, um, <laughs> I think it's a story 
of a man who has a, a trip into fairyland. And because the real world cannot in any way approach the, the peak experience of meeting a true union or what feels like a true union, a clearly sexual union, um, in fairyland, being back in the real world leaves this person forever depressed, forever sad. Um, and what we see as well is that the, uh, the sexual union, the elfin grod and the pacing steed, um, have blinded this man so that although the fairy speaks in a language strange, somehow he thinks he knows that it says, I love thee true. But in fact, if she loved him true, she would not utterly and permanently diminish his life. So La Belle Dame Sans Merci is, uh, is not a figure in fairyland. Thematically, I think La Belle Dame Sans Merci is the false promise of beauty that makes us dissatisfied with the world in which we live. And I think that's something that that all of us can understand how when we think we have something wonderful, we may regret its loss forever after. Um, that's one of the reasons that I think this is so popular and great a poem. But it's also a poem, as you've said to me before, Jesse, that's enormously compressed. It's mm -hmm. one that deserves attention to every single detail. And it's for that reason that it is extra important to consider the possibility of variance. Now, I like this variant, the one that calls the, uh, the poor fellow uh, a knight at arms, because a knight at arms reminds us of the phrase bachelor at arms. Um, it reminds us of a young knight who not, does not yet have matrimony, um, who is, in fact, uh, subject to other people who tell him where to go and what to do. And he thinks in this context, he has coupled with the queen of fairyland. But in fact, he's still not his own man. In fact, the whole experience unmans him. And all of the nature imagery surrounding this lets us know that the natural world is dying but he cannot withdraw himself from this because he still sees only that vanished possibility. Mm -hmm. I like, I like the, the knight image as well, the knight at arms. Um, but I, I prefer the, the original published version, um, which is similar. Uh, the line starts, the first line starts instead of, Oh, what can ail the knighted arms? It starts, ah, what can ail the wretched white? White, W-I-G-H-T. And then continues on, and subsequently it's a wretched white instead of knighted arms. Um, I, I like your interpretation of why knight is better. Um or at least interesting for the poem, and it does change the meaning. I, this is a very popular poem for um, for artists to depict, 
and they love showing a knight at arms uh, dressed in armor um, on the side of a hill, usually with a beautiful fairy maiden nearby who is attending him while he lays in the moss. Um, but I think Wretched White has some resonances that uh, play better today um, and also um, that p- perhaps play better just in general. So a white is it's a man or a person, but it's an Anglo-Saxon word, but it it has a, an additional resonance, especially if you're on the side of a hill, because um, the introduction that I had to white is from the Lord of the Rings. Um, as soon as the hobbits leave uh, Hobbiton and are off adventuring in the borders of the Shire, their first real adventures is with something called the Barrow Whites, which are um, these Barrow men or Barrow creatures, uh, dead kings who, or dead kings and dead lords who have been buried under hills and who are starved and um, damned in some way. And if you go out on their barrow downs late at night, uh, you might be pulled into the hill. That resonance, I think Tolkien would have been aware of this poem. He was a scholar of such things. And so there's a future resonance if you see it as a, a white on the side of a hill. White also, as a poem, um, there's this wonderful thing about poems is that they don't just exist on the page. They also exist in the air when we speak them. And, oh, wretched white could be W-H-I-T-E, which matches the man. His skin is lily. His cheeks, uh, once rosy, are now fading. He's dying. This is a hint of the future death of this man. And uh, it fits very much with the very next line, alone and palely loitering. Right? I believe that this is a man who is being interviewed while dying on the side of a of a a little hill. That's that's a. I guess I would suggest that that's a a complementary way to read the poem. Mm-hmm. Whether we think of a knight at arms as a a bachelor nobleman or of lower caste, lower caste in the peerage, or we think of this white as just any man. Um, the notion that that they are both young and déclassé compared to the world they would like to inhabit uh, works. I think the associations that you're offering with, with wretched white work as well. Um, but I got to uh, point out that uh, in some ways they work even better than you have said so far, in others maybe not so much. Um, in Scottish, a white is actually a supernatural being, mm-hmm. which is what I think Tolkien was picking up on, that these Barrow Whites are not just human beings. And uh, here, in fact, I think our our suffering fellow isn't supernatural. That's the problem, is that he can't live in the supernatural world. On the other hand, when Keats uses the term white, he calls him wretched. And the word wretched comes from the Old English wretch, 
which means someone who is in exile, someone mm -hmm. who's been driven out of his native land. So um, I think one could argue that that this young fellow um, has been driven out, exiled at least, from the society of other ordinary people by his experience. On the other hand, one could argue that uh, he's not really driven out, he is seduced out. And that may be why it's better not to call him wretched. Um, and then Knight at Arms would be a preferred reading. But, you know, apparently Keats wrote both of these. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if we had the capacity to read two poems in our mind at once, maybe we should read both <laughs> of these poems. Well, we do get uh, a resonance uh, later on with knights. I saw pale kings and princes too, pale, pale warriors, death pale were they all, who cried, La belle dans son merci hath thee in thrall. How do they know this? Because they've been in that situation as well. Um, if, if we look at uh, his own life, um, that is the life of John Keats, um, he's actually himself pretty much in this situation too. <laughs> he is um, dying of consumption. Um, his brother had just died of consumption um, around the time that this was published. And he uh, is well regarded by some but not making very much money. And he essentially dies of being too poor, um, unable to marry the woman he wants to marry. Um, <laughs> he, he dies alone in Italy, um, trying to make his lungs work properly. Um, and there are a number of such images in this poem that the, um, the, Fourth stanza, I see a lily on thy brow with anguish moist and fever dew, and on thy cheek a fading rose fast withereth too. Um, the sedge isn't the only thing that's withered. The I'm sorry, uh, isn't I, that the third stanza? Uh, it, it, it moves around depending on which one we're looking at. Um, you're right, it is the third stanza, though. Um, and uh, so this image of a, a fever dew um, is also later matched by the manna dew, which is, you know, bread from God, <laughs> uh, bread from uh, overhead, as uh, one science fiction writer put it. Um, and yet, I don't think dew is going to be a very substantial food, just as I don't think relish sweet comes from roots. It's almost like a poison brew. And She's almost a witch. Oh, I think she is. I think, I think in, indeed, it's, th there are many witches that she is like. I think one needs to ask, why does this La Belle Dame, why does La Belle Dame do this at all? Um, and I think fairy is a, a hint to us of what's going on. Mm -hmm. We have lots of witches uh, Grimm's fairy tale gives us many examples who are full of sexuality, which is unexpressible. Um, so we have, uh, for instance, in uh, in the Raven, um, uh, we have 
well, I'll tell you what. Here's here's a good one. Take a look at Sleeping Beauty. Mm-hmm. In Sleeping Beauty, uh, I'll remind uh, uh, myself as well as you. Um, what happens is that at the age of fifteen, uh, well, actually a little earlier, um, uh, this girl um, has a marriage. Uh, no, sorry. When the girl is born, when the princess is born, um, there is a a party for her, and. Twelve wise women are invited. It turns out that, in fact, there are 13 wise women. So the 11th one comes, and each one makes a blessing. The 12th one who then comes in is the uninvited one. And she says that when the girl turns 15, she'll die. The 13th one, who is invited, comes along and says, although I cannot undo the curse, I can soften it. And so um, at the age of 15, Sleeping Beauty goes to the top of a tower and there's an old woman spinning and she, that is the Sleeping Beauty, pricks her finger on a spindle and falls back into a bed, which is conveniently there. And then a hundred years passes. And at the end, uh, finally, uh, a prince is able to get through the brambles, uh, which finally part, uh, kisses her, she wakes up and they live happily ever after. Um, The kingdom comes to the prince because he wakes the sleeping beauty. It's the woman's suffering that lead to a happy outcome. All of this has to do with barrenness, right? The wise women had no children, sexuality, sleep, right? But in the household tale, which is meant to be shared with children, on eventually waking up, the female protagonist marries and is presumably successful. In this adult telling of the story, the male protagonist is never going to be able to have have success. And the problem is he woke up too soon. This Mm. is a version, an adult inversion, as it were, of a common motif. Now, why does... Why does the uh, the spurned wise woman do this? Because she can't even participate at one remove in the fecundity of the kingdom. Why does uh, La Belle Dame Sans Merci do this? Because she craves sexual power. You know, um, there's an interesting meter to this and rhythm to it. Mm-hmm. Um, the the uh, the standard ballad in English is composed of iambic tetrameter. Da 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 Right. So it's it's four iams, a bump foot, and at the end each line is four of those, and it rhymes a b c b a b c b, and we have here. A, B, C, B, throughout the entire poem. But instead of the fourth line of each stanza being four metric feet long, it's only three metric feet long. So that each stanza ends with a kind of freeze frame. It focuses our attention. Mm-hmm. So I tried something when I was rereading this poem. If you just take a look at where our attention is frozen, if you just read as a new poem, the fourth lines, you actually get a con- even more condensed story of why this woman has gone and enthralled 
the young, previously virginal man. I say virginal in part because of the repetition of the lily on his brow um, and the passion that she uh, inspired in him. The rose is fast uh, fading as it's told in the Victorian period, which is where we are now, at least by the birth of Victoria. Um, there's a whole language of flowers. In fact, there's a terrific little book by Kate Greenaway called The Language of Flowers, in which she illustrates what each flower means. Um, so just reading the fourth lines, mm -hmm. and no birds sing, and the harvest's done, fast withereth too, and her eyes were wild, and made sweet moan a fairy's song, I love thee true, with kisses for on the cold hill's side hath thee enthrall on the cold hill's side and no birds sing. It's as if there was already death when it began. No mm -hmm. birds sing, the harvest done, nothing is growing, everything has, is withering, and that's what drove her eyes wild. She couldn't bear to have this barrenness. So she made sweet moan. She sent out a signal to attract a man, the way the witch in Hansel and Gretel sets up food to attract the children. It is, in fact, a fairy song. And the fairy song is, I love thee true, which is not, in fact, human language at all. So with kisses four, two for each of them, that is sealed. But that also puts it to quit. It's over. On the cold hillside, he hath been now in thrall. He's on the cold hill's side, and no birds sing. She may have gotten what she wanted. He will never be able to get what he wants and did not even know how much he wanted it till she made it apparent to him. As, for example, in Rapunzel, the woman who will ultimately bear the child does not know that she wants the rampion in the garden until the witch grows it and the woman can then see it out her window. Mm. The witch creates the problem. The witch is fighting barrenness. The man who is captured by the witch is forever blighted. I, I I like your reading, and it brought to mind a sort of this is almost like an inversion of the traditional story of Persephone and Hades. So, ah. in out of the cave comes this summer spirit, and she loves the earth and the earth loves her and then she retreats to the cave leaving the man behind who like the earth dies while she is asleep that hill is full of dead men from all the summers past this mm -hmm. <laughs> this that hill is perhaps made of all the dead men of summers past yes yes all those knights and kings who all say we have you in in the she has you in your in her thrall. It is interesting that uh, I'm, I'm building on what you've just said, Jesse, that um, the knight at arms or the wretched white um, 
says, I saw pale kings and princes. Pale kings and princes. Now, usually you get kings and princes together only when there's a combat or when they are making um, court to an even higher power. Kings and princes come together at the, uh, the seat of the Pope in the Middle Ages. But kings and princes stay in their separate domains. So how is it on this cold hill he gets to see kings and princes? I think you're completely right. He is seeing the ghosts of kings and princes who have died there over the course of generations. People who already had achieved the kind of aristocratic um, elevation that he has yet to achieve. And they too died there. Right? They know exactly what his problem is, as you said. So this is a story that not only takes us at a moment when presumably the, the knight at arms wakes up, it's a story that is like fairy tales, an absolutely timeless one. It encompasses mm -hmm. all time periods. So then in the last stanza, when the, uh, the, the, the knight at arms or Richard White says, and this is why I sojourn here, I can't help but think that Keats, who knew French, understood that he was doing something here to talk again to us about the timelessness involved. Journée is um, the amount of time a day takes. A jour is a day in French. To mm -hmm. sojourn is to spend only a small amount of time someplace. Maybe like just go for the day. But what we've just seen with those kings and princes is that once you're in thrall to La Belle Dame Sans Merci, a title in French, you're there forever. Or to put it another way, your one day will occupy eternity. You'll never have a different day. You're there forever. So what kind of a day is it? Well, it's a day where he sees their starved lips. Why are their lips starving? Because they too cannot have any water because in fact the water is receding from the lake. That's why the sedge, which grows around the lakeside is withering, is withered. He sees them, their lips in the gloam which is a word that, uh, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, Keats revived. It had meant um, uh, e, um, dusk, uh, but it, it survived into more modern English only as gloaming, the time of the light fading away. He returned the word as a noun, gloam. So this is a time between times, between night and day. And when they see him, what they always, what uh, they say, betide. And he says uh, back, I dreamed, ah, woe, betide. Well, the word tide means going back and coming in. It is mm -hmm. the word from which we get time. It means the division between two times, uh, etymologically. And so this whole poem is set in a time out of time. Unfortunately, the night at arms, the wretched white, doesn't realize that he is out of time. Or in another sense, he's out of time. <laughs> He'll never be able to make any progress because La Belle Dame Sans Merci has him in thrall. 
She wants fertility. She wants fecundity. She wants his lily brow. She wants that virginity, and she wants to make something of it. And whether she has back in fairyland, the knight does not know. But what he's taken from it is a passion, the rose, not the lily, which is fading fast. I think that this is a poem that speaks to, uh, in its most general way, an experience we can all share. Not <laughs> the experience of having gone into fairyland, but, for, ex for example, having a dream that is so desirable that if we think of it as approachable, we may spend the rest of our lives dyspeptic, upset, because we're not able to achieve that dream. I mean, think of people who, who define success as having a particular partner or having a certain amount of money or going to certain places or being appreciated by certain people. And they're sure they can have that. They see this dream again and again in movies, in books, in other people's bragging. And instead of living in their lives, they've been touched by those dreams and forever live dissatisfied. I think Keats is on to something here. I think so, too. But there is always more to say. Indeed.